So if you're not there already, find your way to Micah chapter 5. I'm going to read the first two verses to kind of set the stage for where we're going today. Micah chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, this is what God's word says. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Epaphra, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you, the God of all of human history, the one who knows and determines the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. Lord, 700 years before Bethlehem, you made it known to your prophet exactly where the king would come from. And Lord, you've given us wonderful promises in your word. And so I ask, Lord, along with the psalmist, that you would open our eyes today, that we might behold wonderful truths, wonderful things from your word. Open our eyes, because on our own, we have no insight, we have no wisdom, we have no understanding other than what you bring. Lord, your word is truth. So may it be a light to our feet, a guide to our steps. Lord, we ask that in your mercy, you wouldn't only help us to understand, but that you would then help us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We need your help to do all of these things. And so we pray and we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Now, as, as I set the stage here, we're actually going to get into verse 1 and build up a little bit of background and anticipation. Uh, so, the slide guys didn't forget to transition, and uh, I didn't lose my place yet. Good chance I do that, but not yet. Uh, because Micah 5 doesn't come out of nowhere. As we study these things in bits and pieces and week after week, uh, we can forget the continuity. But where we're coming from, we've been building this idea, this kind of prophetic anticipation. One of the great things about going through all the minor prophets is that we can see how God begins to reveal, and then as he gives this progressive revelation, how the bits and the pieces that were fuzzy and vague start to get some detail. Uh, we know some things. We know that sin is going to bring judgment. We know where there is repentance that God stands ready and able to forgive and restore his people. But now, as we've gone through the Minor Prophets, we can begin to put some detail, uh, some lines to those vague ideas. We know that what's coming in judgment isn't just a time of difficulty because the prophets have given us some very specific things about what that devastation is going to look like. We know that the cities of Jerusalem and Samaria are both going to come to ruin. We know that the house of God, the temple itself, is going to be overwhelmed and overcome. We know that the people are going to be exiled and cast out of the land. God has not only told his people that their sin is going to bring judgment, he has told his people that their sin is going to lead to some very, very specific outcomes. And that's where chapter 5 starts. Muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. Uh, the idea of Jerusalem being called and prepared for war. Daughter of troops is kind of a Hebraic way of saying a warlike city ought to prepare for war. And God, through the minor prophets in particular, has presented Jerusalem as a violent people. Violent toward their own people most of the time. But now uh, there's this threat coming from outside. And it says, with a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. It's a picture of the judge, the king, the ruler over Israel being humiliated. They're going to face violence from the outside and all the troops that they can muster aren't going to make a difference. 
The city is going to come to destruction, and in particular, the king, the ruler, the shepherd, the sovereign over the people is going to be brought low. And on one hand, that makes sense. They're a violent people, so they should expect judgment. It makes sense because the kings, the shepherds, the rulers over Israel had failed and failed horribly, and so they too should be uh, anticipating judgment. But there's a problem, there's a tension there. Because even as the prophet writes about the kings that will be struck, even as the prophets tell us that the kings are going to come to an end, that there will be a time where there is no king over Israel, there's a problem there because God himself made very, very specific promises to David. In 2 Samuel, God told David that he was going to build him a house, a line that would not end, that would extend through eternity. He told David that he would never lack a man to sit on the throne. He told David that one day a child of his, a descendant of his, would rule not only over Israel, but over all of the nations. And so you're thrown into this tension, if you understand what God says, between discipline on the Davidic line and blessing on the Davidic line. And we're wondering, if we're thinking along with the prophets, how does all of this reconcile? How in this tension is God going to be faithful to every one of his promises? We know that God has promised judgment, but what else do we know through the minor prophets? Not only has God given detail about the destruction, we know that God has given us some detail on the restoration as well. And we know that a significant piece of that restoration deals with the king, the leaders, the ruler over the people. Where the kings of history failed and failed repeatedly, The prophets in particular point us toward a coming king who will not fail. Where have we seen that? Hosea 1 says that the people will follow one king. Hosea 3 says that in the latter days the people will seek the Lord their God and David their king. Joel 2 and Joel 3 says that the Lord will rule in the midst of Israel. Amos 9 says the fallen booth of David will be rebuilt. Obadiah verse 21 says that the kingdom will be the Lord's. And now we come to the prophet Micah. Flip back a couple of pages to Micah chapter 2 verse 13. What did we read, what did we read in Micah 2 13? He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate going out by it. Their king passes on before them the Lord at their head. Chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, talked about the idea that the nations would come, that they would say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, so that he may teach us his ways. The idea that the Lord himself would not only rule over, but would instruct the nations. Up to this point, this king is pictured as being the fulfillment of all of those promises of David. But put this in your mind. The king up to this point is pictured as being Yahweh, God, the Lord himself. But what else do we know about this ruler? As we move through the next section of Micah chapter 5, we are going to be given additional details that continue to clarify and in some ways continue to build tension into the picture of what this ruler is like. And the first thing that we find out about this ruler in Micah 5 is that unlike any other king in human history, this ruler is eternal. Look at verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Epaphrath, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Now, Now set that in the immediate context. In the previous verse, what did it say about the judge, the ruler over Israel? Struck on the cheek, afflicted, 
that he would be humiliated. The kings of Israel, the kings over Judah, the kings of the Davidic line would be brought to an end in judgment. But that's not the end of God's story for his kings. Bethlehem is going to produce someone who is greater than any king that has come before. And the next slide has a picture of Bethlehem. And if you can see that now, it's not such an oh, sleepy little town of Bethlehem. But you need to understand that when the prophet talks about Bethlehem, he's not talking about a major population center. Uh, This is a minor city, a minor village, really, that is on the way to the much more important city of Jerusalem. Bethlehem would not be considered, it would not be uh, assumed to be the place where greatness comes from. But God says that from you, Bethlehem, shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old from ancient days, from this city, the city of David, the place where David was born, the same city where God's chosen kingly line began, there is going to come the king who will be like no other. And that passage right there is probably the most familiar part of the whole book of Micah because we read it every Christmas. And what's astounding to me is that as God's people, Israel, read this throughout the centuries, they assumed that God meant exactly what he said. When King Herod rules over Israel and the Magi, the wise men, come from the east and Herod calls in the learned men of the law and the prophets and he asks them, where is the Messiah to be born? They don't hem and haw. They don't wonder. They don't look for kind of spiritually mystical answers and give vague responses. They say, we know exactly where he's going to be born. The prophet Micah said that he would be born in Bethlehem. They immediately quote this passage And it's a beautiful picture of God's faithfulness to his every promise in the fact that we see Jesus Christ born exactly where Micah said he would be born some 700 years beforehand. But that's not the only promise in that phrase. Because if you read it, it says that the king will come from Bethlehem, but it also says that the king will not begin in Bethlehem. Because his coming forth is from old, from ancient days. The king is going to come from Bethlehem, but he's going to have no beginning. Now, for a moment, forget the fact that we have 2,000 years of a closed canon and the tremendous blessing of theological and historical hindsight. For a moment, put yourself in the place of the prophets and the people that receive their message. How do you have a beginning but have no birthplace? Or how do you have a birthplace but have no beginning? How can... How can the Lord be king? How can all of these prophets picture Yahweh the Lord as leading the people himself, but then have God say, from you will come forth for me, for God, one who is to be ruler? How can he be both God and for God? You understand that those tensions only find resolution in the person and the work of Jesus Christ? that only one who is truly God and truly man could ever fit that. Jesus Christ, the rightful and righteous king over Israel, was born in Bethlehem, but he did not begin in Bethlehem. And Jesus himself tells us the same thing. We could go to John chapter 8, where Jesus proclaims himself to be the light of the world. And he's condemned by the religious leaders of Israel. Even as he's kind of condemned them, he, he points out their sin and their rebellion, and they are quick to fight against him. And Jesus says in John chapter 8 that anyone who keeps his word will not taste death. And the religious leaders say, you must have a demon. 
Jesus says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And they say, now we know you have a demon. They mock him. They say, you're not yet 50 years old. How is it that you can talk about seeing Abraham? And then Jesus makes this astounding, shocking statement. John 8, 58, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And the Jews know exactly what Jesus is saying because they want to kill him for saying that. They understand exactly what he's saying because he just claimed to be of the same eternal divine nature of God. He even used that I am statement that God used to reveal himself in the Old Testament. He is setting himself on the same footing, on par with God. How could he be from Bethlehem and be eternal? Jesus Christ is the only answer. And the very next thing we're going to see about this coming ruler is that not only is he eternal, but he is the good shepherd. Look at verse 3. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. This verse is dealing with the fact that Israel will be handed up, will be given over, but only for a time. Judgment and exile are coming, but judgment and exile don't describe the end. They actually anticipate something different. There's going to be a prescribed time, a determined time, uh, when there's going to be a restoration. And so he gives this picture of a woman in labor. And the picture of the woman in labor here isn't so much talking about the birth of the Messiah. The picture of the woman in labor is used to show the anticipated end of something. Because there's a very particular progression when it comes to pregnancy. There's pregnancy, there's labor, and then there's a birth. That is the order of events from as long as there have been children. And what the prophet is saying that There, too, is a prescribed order for the history of God's people. There is judgment, there is exile, but there is redemption coming. And this restoration, this redemption that's coming, isn't just marked by the birth of a ruler. It's also marked by the return of his brothers. He'll give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, and then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. That that idea of a return, a gathering of what was scattered, is such a central theme in the Minor Prophets. I hope you've seen it. We've covered it over and over. The idea that the people that are scattered, scattered to the ends of the earth in exile and in judgment are going to be brought back together. But it's more than just a return to the land. See, Israel, uh, we know, is overtaken by Assyria, and the northern kingdom is wiped out, scattered. We know that the southern kingdom of Babylon is overtaken and overcome by Judah or by Babylon. Uh, Judah is overtaken by Babylon. They're moved into exile for a period of 70 years. And then they return under King Cyrus. But understand this, the message of the prophets, including prophets who write after that time of exile, they picture the people of Israel in spiritual exile even beyond the time of their physical exile. The people wander as long as they do not follow after God. In other words, even when Israel returns to its land after 70 years in exile, they are still wandering. Even though Israel possesses a land today, the people of Israel, prophetically speaking, and we'll see this again as we move through the Minor Prophets, they are still in exile. They still anticipate and await a return and a redemption and a restoration. They're still lost. They're still searching. But there's a time coming when that spiritual exile comes to an end. When the people return to the Lord. And when the people return to the Lord, look at verse 4. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the name 
of the Lord his God. See, the kings and the priests and the prophets of Israel were supposed to shepherd the people. They were supposed to feed and care for, to guide, to guard, to tend to the people, but they didn't, they failed. They led them astray. They let them wander. In the worst instances, they devoured their own flock and used it for their own gain. But there's a king who is coming who is going to stand and shepherd the flock, it says, in the name of the Lord. And not only in the name of the Lord, but in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. There is one who is going to shepherd the people with the same care and compassion and righteousness and holiness and majesty as God himself. Who could shepherd on behalf of God and yet share the majesty of God? Do you see the tension that is built into these prophetic passages? And they will dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. See, this good shepherd is going to finally be, bring peace and security to his people. But his name is not only going to be great in Israel, his name is going to be great to the ends of the earth. And if all of that talk about a good shepherd sounds very, very familiar, it probably should. You go to John chapter 10, and I would encourage you to read it with this in the background at some point this week. John chapter 10, and Jesus tells us exactly what he is like. And Jesus uses words that are absolutely intentional. He says that his sheep will be called by his name and that he will lead them. He says that his sheep hear the voice of the shepherd and they respond to him. He says that he is the door. In John 10, verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In John 10, 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. The failed shepherds destroyed the flock for their own benefit. And Jesus calls his sheep to save them, even at the cost of his own life. And what I want you to understand is that picture of Jesus as the good shepherd is not only this tender pastoral picture, which it absolutely is. It shows his tender care for his flock. But what you have to understand is that is deeply rooted in prophetic promises that are 700 years old by that point. Jesus is the only one who resolves the tension for shepherding like God and shepherding with equality to God. And as we close this kind of first portion of Micah chapter 5, we learn one more, about, one more thing about this coming ruler. He's going to be eternal. He's going to be the good shepherd. And finally, we see that this ruler is going to be the defender of his people. Look at verse 5. And he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men, and they shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword. And the land of Nimrod is at its entrances. There's a time coming when the antagonist and the invader are not going to be successful in trying to overtake Israel. We know that Israel is often overrun. In fact, prophetically, God says that that's the only outcome that can happen. As they're disobedient, they will find nothing but defeat, no matter how large their army is. But there's a time coming when you get this wonderful contrast that he is their peace even when the invader comes. That he is their peace because he is their strength, he is their security. 
Assyria is this constant enemy of the people. And now the picture is when they come into the land, when a foreign invader comes into the land, when they tread down their palaces, then what's raised against them is seven shepherds and eight princes of men. And don't try to get too detailed into figuring out the seven shepherds and eight princes of men. What he's saying is there's an abundance of resources to push back against the invader. How has Israel been pictured over and over throughout the minor prophets? Small, weak, lacking, and now there's going to be an abundance available to move against the invader, and not only to defend, but to drive them back into their land, to rule over them in Assyria. But that makes sense also when you start to put this together, because God is not only the God of Israel, he's the God of the nations. The Lord, the shepherd, the king over Israel is not only the king of Israel, he is the promised king of the nations. And when he reigns in victory, he gives victory to his people. And it is not because Israel is strong. It is not because Israel finally has better weapons or better armies or better generals. It is not because of anything on Israel's behalf. It is only because he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. The people are brought victory because they are led finally by the one true king. The eternal king the king who is the good shepherd, the king who is the defender of his people. And that kind of brings us to the second half of the chapter because it begins to establish this link between the ruler and the outcomes for his people. There's an identification. As he rules, he does so over a people who are radically changed. So we're going to move from talking about the ruler to talking about the remnant. This picture of a remnant, again, it doesn't start here in Micah 5. It's a continual idea through the prophets that although Israel will be punished, although Israel will be disciplined, although they will be brought low and made small, God will not abandon or destroy his people. He preserves a remnant. But what will that remnant be like? When the king comes, what changes for his people? Well, the first thing that we're going to see is that this remnant becomes a powerful people. Again, Israel is not pictured as a powerful people. They are not an international force to be reckoned with. And especially at this time, when they are about to be brought under God's heavy hand of discipline, they are pictured as small, as weak, as exiled, as counted as nothing among the nations. But that will not always be the case. When the king comes, he brings power to his people. Look at verse 7. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples. And stop there for a second. Because there's a huge change in that verse. What do we know about what happens to Israel when they're disciplined? They're kicked out of what? Kicked out of the land and scattered where? Among the nations, in discipline. But look at what's changed here. The remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, only now it's not talking about that as an act of discipline. Now the fact is that Israel will be among many peoples because they are powerful and because they're influential. They will be like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of men. There's this picture of kind of this divine presence behind the power of the people. The first picture that we're given here is a positive picture. It's like dew from the Lord. There was dew on the grass this morning, but it's not because somebody got up and turned on the dew. You do not all have neighborhood dew watchers that have to go out and make sure it gets put on everybody's yard every morning, right? Right? No, the dew comes because the Lord wills it. It's not on a man's timetable. It's not under man's power or authority. The same way Israel will now have influence and a presence among the nations, not because of anything human in its imperative, but because God himself wills it and determines it. There's a second picture here that has the same underlying quality, but it's a very, very different perspective. Look at verse 8. 
and the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples. Same idea, but here's what they're like now. They're like a lion among the beasts of the forests, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Another picture where the primary idea is this eminence, this idea that no one can stand against it, no one can stop it. Nobody gets between a lion and their prey, just like nobody turns on the dew. But now Israel is pictured as this powerful, not violent for the sake of violence, but this powerful overcoming people. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries and all your enemies will be cut off. See, the people are going to be plentiful and the people are going to be powerful. And what's fascinating is that these people of God, this renewed and restored Israel, out and among the nations can either be a source of blessing or a source of judgment. And guess what we find as we move through the rest of the minor prophets? That that is exactly what Israel does. Particularly in Zechariah, that as the nations seek the Lord, as ten men will grab a hold of the cloak of a Jew and say, take us to your Lord. Israel now becomes a light to the nations, which is what God always called and commanded them to be from way back at the foot of Mount Sinai. And now where there's rebellion among the nations, Israel, restored, purified, and made ready to serve the Lord, will be a means of discipline. Again, not because of anything that they are, not because of their power, not because of their influence, but because God is their head. And the final portion of chapter 5 talks about a people who are purified by their king. Not only are they powerful, but they are a people who are purified. Remember, you cannot separate the physical restoration of Israel from the spiritual restoration of Israel. In the same way that you cannot separate the spiritual failure of Israel from the physical discipline of Israel. Israel spiritually fails. They are idolatrous, spiritually adulterous, wicked people, and God physically removes them from his land. And then when the time comes when Israel is physically restored, it cannot be separated from their spiritual restoration. Those two are tied together. Look at verse 10. And in that day, declares the Lord. What day? In this day when the shepherd king rules. In this day that really is grounded in Micah chapter 4 that talks about in the latter days. This is a whole whole section that ought to go together. In that day... I will cut off your horses from among you and I will destroy your chariots. I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. And you say, well, that sounds like he's writing in judgment to a people. Has God switched back to now talking about what he's going to do to Assyria or Egypt or any one of the other nations that are pictured as overcoming his people? But he's not. The closest context there, he's talking about this remnant of Jacob and he's saying that he is going to destroy their horses, their chariots and their cities. Why in the world would God talk like that? Because the constant practice of Israel had been to rely on their own strength, on the number of their horses, on the number of their chariots, on the strength of their cities. It's a constant problem in Israel's history. They try to find security through every physical, man-made means possible. How do we build alliances? Well, we better intermarry with the foreign uh, people so that we can share their culture so that we can be secure. How do we maintain security? We build up the army, we number the people, and we make sure that whatever army they bring, we can bring one bigger. How do we keep our cities strong? We build bigger walls. Here's a cool picture for you. Next slide. 
Maybe it's not cool for you. It's super cool for me. It's called the Broad Wall. This is in uh, the Jewish quarter in Jerusalem. If you went with us last year, you walked right next to that, left-hand side of the screen. This wall dates from Hezekiah's time. The one that Micah was writing to, that king that was here him, that's a wall that he built. And he built that because Assyria, this mighty foreign invader, was threatening his people. The foreigner comes, and Hezekiah's initial response, although Hezekiah is a good and obedient king, Hezekiah's initial response is to build the wall. Two things I want you to notice in this picture. First of all, first arrow, not the blue slide. That does not date from Hezekiah's time. That marker over there on the wall shows you how high that wall was. Significant, about nine meters across. Roughly the height of a two-story building there. But that's not the most fascinating thing. I want you to look at the second arrow here. What you see down there are the foundations and cornerstones of homes. Hezekiah was so eager to fortify the city that he destroyed homes of his people to do it. He traded the homes of his people for the security of his city. And God actually condemns him for that. In Isaiah chapter 22, verse 8 through 10, Isaiah says, In that day you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest, and when you saw that the breach of the city of David were many, you collected the waters of the lower pool, and you counted the houses of Jerusalem, and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. Rather than Say, this is the city where God has placed his temple. This is the city where God has called his people. We will entreat the Lord to defend us. He tried to defend himself. Again, Hezekiah is a good king. He will learn. He will listen. He will repent. He will turn. But understand that faith was not the default response, even for good kings. See, but there's a time coming when God is going to remove that. There's a time coming when God so radically changes the hearts of his people that when their chariots, their fortified cities, their walls, their swords, their spears are done away with, it's not a problem because the Lord himself stands as their defender and their faith is rooted and grounded in his ability. They are purged and purified from their arrogant, self-righteous pride that says we are responsible for our safety and security. God purifies his people of that and that's not where it stops. He goes on, look at verse 12. And I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. He's talking about taking away these pagan elements of sorcery and fortune-telling. Sorcery that seeks to give man the power of God. Magic tricks that enable you to demonstrate some kind of divine power that the Lord himself holds in his hand. Fortune-telling, giving wisdom to man that only belongs to God. The idea that you ought to have omniscience as God has omniscience. The idea that you ought to be all-knowing as God is all-knowing. God hates those. He hates them. For temporary finite humanity to attempt to take on the attributes of Almighty God is an affront to his character, and God will purge his people of that. And he's also going to remove the idolatry, the physical idolatry. I'll cut off your carved images, your pillars from among you. You will bow down no more to the work of your hands. God says, I'm going to take away those pillars. The pillars are these 
tall standing stones that are either representations of the gods, the pagan gods, or uh, set up in memoriam of those pagan gods. And God says, I'm going to tear them down. I'm going to take away the idols, the work of your hands, because that's what the people were doing. The people were worshiping something that they had made. The people were ascribing glory and honor and allegiance to something that depended on them for their existence. And you say, that sounds insane. Sin is always crazy. Sin is always completely counter to what is logical, true, right, and good. These people were worshiping the works of their own hands. And it's vain, it's empty, it's rebellious worship. He says he'll root out the Asherah images from among you. Asherah is this Canaanite goddess thought to be the mother of the gods, this fertility goddess. The worship of Asherah involved all kinds of lewd, perverted acts, and the people were so deeply entwined in those things. And God said he's going to destroy it, he's going to do away with it, and he's going to destroy their cities. Why? Why would God picture destruction on the cities? All kinds of different answers. I think it's likely because the cities were the places where these things were centrally worshipped. Think about what we know of cities in the Minor Prophets. What has God said about cities like Dan and Bethel and Gilgal, places that had become centers for pagan worship? He's going to do away with those things. God is going to cut these things out entirely. Like a cancer in the midst of his people, God will utterly destroy what is poisoning them spiritually. And look at how he ends. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. See, God is going to discipline his people, and it's going to begin in Micah's lifetime when the northern kingdom is carried off. He's going to restore and renew his people, both spiritually and physically. And those are the promises that we've been looking at. But Yahweh is not only the God of Israel. He's the God of the nations. And if he will deal rightly with his people, he will also deal rightly with the nations that do not obey. See, one day, the nations that rage will be ruled over with a rod of iron, as Psalm 2 says. Or to put it in a New Testament context, one day, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, normally as we close, I wrap up with kind of a central point and then we make our applications. We're going to start with the applications today because we all need a bit of a jolt after camp. Three things I want you to think about as we head out. First of all, you need to remember, you need to remind yourself constantly that this is the God who is faithful. Uh, One of the wonderful reminders from this passage is that God is faithful because here's the question. How do you know, you personally, you specifically know right now at this point in history No matter what your age, no matter what your gender, no matter what your race, no matter what your circumstances, that you can trust this God. How do you know that of all the supposedly viable options out there, that Christianity alone is the way to God? How do you know that the Bible that you hold in your hand is not just another religious book like the Koran or the Book of Mormon, but that this is the Word of God. How do you know? Because every time God and His Word are tested, He proves Himself faithful. Every time. Because 700 years before Christ was born, Micah tells us exactly where He will be born. Because when Isaiah talked about Hezekiah tearing down houses to build a wall, a wall that historians didn't even know existed until the 70s, we dig and we find exactly what God's word said happened. 
Because that's not the only word. There's hundreds, hundreds of examples of what the Bible says coming true, coming to pass. And not in some kind of vague, mystical, if you squint your eyes and tilt your head this way, yeah, I can kind of see it. But in specific, measurable, literal ways, God fulfills his every promise. And that same God has spoken to you not in vague, mystical, spiritually fuzzy ways, that same God has spoken to you in His Word. And He has made remarkable promises to you and I. He has said that whatever your sin, whatever your failure, whatever your past, that He stands ready to forgive and restore you, not because you deserve it, but because of the work of His perfect Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. That same God who can order the events of human history, has told you and I that he will meet every one of our needs, so we have no reason to be anxious. That same God who marks and makes the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end has said that that king is coming again. And that when he comes, he will restore and renew this world that rightfully has always belonged to him. I have no idea what you're going through today. I have no idea where you and your heart are with this God, but I promise you that you can trust him because he is always faithful. Not always easy, but he is always faithful. Secondly, that same God who is faithful to his every, per- every promise is also the God who empowers his people. In other words, your circumstances are not what make you able to obey. We just came back from camp. And you get the common kind of phrases that surround camp, the idea of a mountaintop experience or a camp high. And we think, if only I was at Hume all the time, then how different my life would look. And one of the things I love about Hume is that every one of the speakers over the last three years has made the same point. Hume is not unique. It's unique in the sense that it's separated and can remove distractions. But the things that make the camp high, that make the mountaintop experience, God's word, God's people, and the presence of his spirit. Those things are not unique to Hume. So students, you come down and you wonder why your life changes. Counselors, we come down and we wonder why our life changes. Those of you sitting here wondering why life can't always be like it was at that one point because we separate ourselves from the very things that God uses to empower his people a removal of distraction and a reliance on his spirit his word and deep and abiding relationships within the church that he has placed us in and that same God that empowers our obedience reminds us that then there's no pride in our obedience In other words, you don't lead because you're strong. You don't teach because you're smart. You don't serve because you're able. We worship in all that we do because the God of creation has made us, fit us, and designed us for the good works that he's called us to. And so there's no pride and there's no excuse. What a wonderful place to live. What a wonderful reality to be in. 
to know that I am free, as Pastor Jim said, free to worship and free to obey and free to love and free to give and free to honor God in all that I do, regardless of what the world says, regardless of what my health is, regardless of what my age is, regardless of what my financial circumstance is, regardless of what terrible circumstance is going on around me, God has made me able to worship him in light of what he is doing in my life right now. The same thing that I'm going to be doing for all eternity, I can begin to do right now, no matter what is going on. That is freedom. To know that we are not at the mercy of a fallen, wicked, broken world, or even the fallen wickedness in my own heart, but that God empowers his people. And finally, that same God is the God who purifies his people. God did what was necessary to remove the spiritual cancer from among his people. Brothers and sisters, let's not play with what God purges. We don't have idols on the shelf at home, probably. Most of us wouldn't be conjuring witchcraft or sorcery. But how deeply do we look at the horoscopes? Just a modern, entertaining version of fortune-telling. How easily we flirt with things like witchcraft and sorcery and what we read, what we watch, what we follow. Those things that God considers vile enough to destroy and purge in the lives of his people, perhaps we should not find where the line is on how acceptable they are. And on the other side of that purification, what walls are you building up to strengthen yourself? I'm a professional at this, sadly, trying to do things on my own strength. And when I come to the end of myself and I get frustrated, God, why have you brought me to this place of loneliness? God, why have you brought me to this place of exhaustion? God, why have you brought me through everything one after another after another? God, why is there no break? Maybe it's because Matt Round is so hard-headed that until God drives him to his knees, he refuses to acknowledge that he needs God in the first place. What a blessed kindness of God to ruin us so that we might find our everything in him. I wish, I pray, I know that God will continue to work in me and I hope that he does the same in you. That in whatever we find our own self-satisfaction, our own self-security, our own self-strength, that he does what is necessary to destroy those strongholds so that he might be glorified. Will you pray with me? Lord God, sovereign, holy, creator of the universe, giver of life, sustainer of every atom in your creation, you've looked on us in our lowliness, in our weakness, in our humility, and you have loved us. You sent Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, to stand in our place, to die the death that we deserved so that we might be covered and clothed in his righteousness. What an awesome and amazing God you are. And Lord, in our weakness, in our brokenness, in our pride and in our arrogance, you continue to remind us that you are worthy of our trust, for you are always faithful. You are always accomplishing your good and perfect will in our life. And God, you have not left us to wonder what that is. You have told us that your will is that you are predestined, predestined us to become conformed to the image of the Son. You've told us 
that you are doing exactly what you are doing to make us more like Christ. So God, help us to rejoice in what you are doing. And Lord, we long for the return of the King. When joy will be found not in things or circumstances, but when our joy will be made complete as we stand in the presence of the King of Kings, worshiping, serving, enjoying Him for all eternity. God, thank you for the promises of your word. Thank you for your perfect faithfulness. Thank you for being our good shepherd, our mighty Savior, our Redeemer, and even our friend. We worship you in Christ's name. Amen.